I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of August 2021, and we are in the midst of the month of Moss. Uh, essentially, what we're doing this month is taking an extended look at the filmography of one Elizabeth Moss, who is an actress that uh, Kyle is quite a big fan of. Uh, I, on the other hand, am basically getting an introduction and a primer to her filmography uh, throughout this entire month. So, um, I'm going to toss it off to Kyle. Uh, what film of Elizabeth Moss's filmography are we going to be taking a look at this week? Uh, this is Her Smell by two th- uh, and from 2018, directed by Alex Ross Perry. Uh, of course, stars Elizabeth Moss. Uh, she's pretty much the main star, but we've got Dan Stevens running around. Cara Delevingne? How do you say that? Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> Delevingne, something like that. Uh, Eric Stoltz and Amber Heard, and then a couple of other ladies that are bouncing around. But yeah. Um, this is all, all the movies that we're watching this month are new to both of us. So uh, this was one that was I, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for uh, two hours and twelve minutes long. Uh, my bad. I didn't realize it was that long. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, it was an absolute torture. I mean, two hours and fifteen minutes. It's not. It's not the longest thing that ever was. But yeah, um, yeah as Kyle had said, uh, pretty much every movie we've been covering this month. Uh, fortunately turns out to actually be a legit catching up on cinema for the for the both of us Mm -hmm. Uh, neither of us have seen any of these films going in uh last week uh we well i reviewed uh the square from 2017 which was a swedish film that elizabeth moss had a a small presence in but she had made a huge contribution to it um i do hope you check that one out uh, on your own time kyle because it is a it's a very dense film Uh, there's a lot there's a lot to ponder on with that one uh, this one, however, brings us back to the world of punk rock. And the yeah. reason I say brings us back to is because, Kyle, I've noticed many a theme uh, among the films that you've selected for uh, catching up on cinema, but punk rock is most certainly a recurring element in your, your choices. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not a huge punk rock fan. I still have a soft spot for some bands that I used to listen to. Uh, music I listened to was like... Uh, evolved from punk rock but i still like the bands are similar it's small venues like this it's intimate uh you know diehard fans uh no sellouts man um but yeah i still like to go to shows i'm actually going to be going to a show next weekend i'm super excited about first show in a long time um oh, wow but yeah um uh we haven't done sid and nancy for the program but i have gifted you sid and nancy uh we covered this salt lake city punk which is one of my favorite movies um but this sounded like an interesting story um and it's not it's not often you see um i like i like movies about bands like i love uh is it almost famous oh yeah almost famous i didn't want to say almost heroes because that's not the same thing Um, (laughs) also a great american film though (laughs) yeah it is a great american film um but no i like i like these stories uh it's i've been i was in bands when i was in high school and it, it was we were pretty we were pretty cool but i know how difficult it is to be in a band uh, and I can't imagine making a living of it. So I always like I'm always interested to see these stories because the the dynamics between the different people. And uh, it was like I just saw Elizabeth Moss is a uh, out of control uh, musician in a punk band. I'm like, well, you sold me. I I just want to watch that now. Um, yes, this did not pan out the way I thought it was going to. Yeah, uh, one thing that's very important to note uh, is that 
Kyle and I were both coming to this film largely blind. I I knew it a little bit by reputation, um, but one thing that is especially important to note is that neither Kyle nor I have any real background with the director of this film, uh, Alex Ross Perry, who um, I did about five minutes of research, so forgive me if I'm omitting some really important details here, but as far as I understand, uh, he has a penchant uh, for both writing and directing uh, very unlikable characters, uh, such that some of the reviews I read for this film, Her Smell, uh, pointed towards the resolution of this film as being kind of an outlier uh, amongst his filmography, where it's, it, it took a turn uh, in a direction that his his stories very seldom take. Um, so I guess this is a, a theme that he's very comfortable, like this is very comfortable territory for him to, to write really unlikable, really scummy characters and just kind of force you to sit down and live with them for a good mm-hmm. two hours. <laughs> um, uh, but I will say this much, uh, he has worked with Elizabeth Moss before. Um, I think it was a Queen of Earth, uh, which as far as I understand came out maybe two, three years before this film, and is also critically well-regarded. Um, and as far as I understand, she also plays a maybe not unlikable, but at least an unhinged character. And I'm like, even though this month has largely represented all of my inter- interactions with her filmography, I'm starting to see a, a pattern where she she seems very comfortable with allowing herself to be shown in kind of the poorest of lights. Um, she seems to to thrive in playing dislikable characters um which as an actress in hollywood like if you're if you're going for like art points like like critical art points that's a very important tool to have in your kit um to to be able to uglify yourself like both physically and in terms of character uh that's not something that just any actor or actress is willing to do and it seems like she just like kind of loves doing it like she'll mm-hmm. can she'll cannonball in the deep end of the pool like if you give her the ugliest fucking character you can possibly imagine on paper uh she really seems to thrive in that setting but go ahead Kyle. Uh, i was gonna say she knocks it out of the park in Mad Men. um she has unlikable moments but for the most part she's the best actress on that show and she has the best character arc but she does put like she does have moments where she gets under your skin, even though she's right. Like <laughs> you should be on her side. It's still because you get roped into uh, going like kind of rooting for Dawn occasionally, and you're like, I shouldn't be though, and I, she shouldn't be upsetting me. But sometimes she does. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited uh, to get this episode over with, uh, so we can get to, <laughs> so that we can get to Shirley next week. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Kyle has already picked out uh, the remainder of this month's episode, so may as well just spoil it right now. Uh, Shirley, yeah. we're, we're doing a one-two punch in the form of Shirley and the Invisible Man, is that mm. correct? Yeah. Uh, both of which I believe came out in 2020, and both of which were critically very well regarded, especially Shirley. In- mm. Invisible Man was more of a commercial hit, but mm. her performance was still critically lauded. But um, yeah, she continues to impress, even with this film, which in case you couldn't tell... Um, we're kind of pussyfooting about around our opinion of, yeah. um, but you know, two hours and 15 minutes of it, uh, probably 85, 90% of it is just dedicated to, to her performance. Mm-hmm. And she's quite the actress, like, um, something that you and I had, had talked about before we started recording was apparently, uh, the director had 
started a campaign like he he was writing letters to many high profile members of of the Hollywood committee and whatnot uh trying to rally for her to get a best actress uh nomination for for the upcoming Oscars um and we looked it up uh before we started recording uh the 2019 uh Oscars which I believe this film would have been eligible for uh the other actresses that were up for best actress uh, Olivia Coleman won uh for the favorite and then we had Yalitza Aparicio, uh, who was up for Roma, and then Glenn Close and Lady Gaga for A Star is Born, and Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, I haven't really seen any of these films, unfortunately, but my gut tells me um, had had the right people given a nod in her direction, Elizabeth Moss's performance probably could have been ranked among those uh, for that year. Easily. Yeah, no, she's a fantastic actress, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get a feel for for her brand, and uh, I'm starting to get to that point where it's like if I see if I see an upcoming project with her name attached to it, uh, the likelihood of me actually going out my way to check it out is vastly increased from from when we began August. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, I'll give the. Uh, do we go ahead and give a plot summary of this real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Elizabeth Moss plays a uh, an aging punk rock front lady uh, who is on a downward downward spiral of uh, alcohol and substance abuse, uh, and she hits rock bottom, and then starts to redeem herself, but doesn't quite. Yeah, that's mostly accurate. Uh, probably the most important thing to note about the structure of the film is, as you had gone over with me before we started recording there's literally five scenes in this movie uh there's literally five scenes uh all of them are kind of divided almost like chapter breaks by home video footage showing uh the the punk rock band like in their glory days i guess be- before the dark times before the empire yeah the 90s um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually one thing that was a little bit fun for me to note um was a. Uh, keeping an eye out for artifacts in the background that could signify uh time stamps i guess like what exactly what year we're supposed to be dealing with um i think i saw like a magazine that said 1993 on it during the early portions of the film and Mm -hmm. then uh when she's in the the cabin when she's in the house in the woods uh the calendar said 1997 uh so we're still within the 90s like that's what's kind of funny about like some of the reunions that happen it's like been like four years it's like it's it's, i've i've had friend reunions that were longer than four years it wasn't that awkward but then again i wasn't you know collapsing in in my own puke on the floor uh every every night (laughs) and you know routinely trying to kill people with broken bottles and stuff uh but stuff like that was kind of fun as as was some of like the like pop culture nods like for instance very early in the film uh there was a party time excellent mm-hmm. uh, we got it in kyle uh yeah. which in 1993 would absolutely be something people would be saying amongst each other just you know in passing um but then more importantly we got a smoking in there smoking <laughs> which would definitely be what 94 95 around there i think it's 94 yeah yeah so like that that particular line it's like oh that's not only appropriate that's also pointing out where we are supposed to be in the timeline so details like that were kind of fun but uh, yeah the movie really does play out over the course of about 
it's just five really long scenes but they're all pivotal moments uh both in the life cycle of the band uh is it something she yeah so yeah it's something she because when we see the band like the banner behind them i'm like is it something she or she something because it's not clear <laughs> but uh it, they do say later it is uh, something she yeah um, and uh yeah i like i do like how it starts with the uh the neon sign and it starts and ends with it which is pretty cool um but i guess the the club is called her her smell or was that just them putting the title like it would be in a club like in a in a place like that uh, i t- i took it to be just like a, a prop that it's there strictly for the purposes of the film like okay. it's it's there for our benefit as the audience um although maybe the club is called her smell like it, it, weird it, name it for wouldn't a club. It, it's a terrible name for a club uh not exactly a very great name for a movie either um but the but the neon signage actually does fit in quite well with the production design so you you could swing it either way but i i took it as the former rather than the latter but um yeah the movie the movie begins with a particular type of energy that um kyle you you were comparing it to to whom um in in terms of like cinematography and like plot uh like scene structure it's very much like Lars von Trier. Uh, I'm sure Matt's like, of course, he would bring up Lars von Trier again. <laughs> I was trying well, not I, to. I'm like that too, but you know. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm trying not to, but there's no other way to describe it. It's very similar. Um, most of, like, the first three scenes uh, are all, almost all handheld. It's all handheld, has very strange blocking, and uh, I think it, the, it was supposed to, um, like, frustrate you more and get you to like because it's hard for you to focus it's hard for you to hear things i think it's supposed to frustrate you more and dislike this character more but also we are in these scenes for the first two scenes are 55 minutes long so i'm like lars von trier does the same thing contemporary lars von trier it's handheld uh we're just kind of going back and forth between two people it's not steady and you are in these scenes for a long time the difference is is he breaks these up into like 10 minute segments not uh, 20 minute segments <laughs> no it it's a it's definitely a unique style of presentation um unfortunately my personal background with lars van trier uh only extends as far as you've introduced me to him mm-hmm. uh, i think i think all the films of his i've seen came directly from you yeah. uh so i you're you're the expert in the room so i'll defer to you i can't challenge you on that but um what what it reminded me of personally um and i'm sure this is a comparison that gets made very 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 often so this is not exactly an insightful observation by any means but kind of reminded me a little bit like the safety brothers uh good time very much uh, uncut gems uh, although this film came out before uncut gems i believe um just it has that that manic sense of of blocking and cinematography and editing where it's claustrophobic um the Safdie brothers, like they, they have a reputation for for building tension and just like, instead of having that tension and release format, they just kind of clench. They just clench you in their fist and don't let you go mm-hmm. for vast stretches of films. The only difference is their moves have their movies have a uh, an energy and a momentum to them that mm-hmm. uh, the amount of movement, both geographically, physically, however you want to phrase it, um, that occurs in their films is it, there's a lot like mm-hmm. like it's constant movement it's it's kind of like a, a dog's got hold of you and just like just like shaking you around like a like a ragged toy or something uh this movie like you said the the scenes are so long 
and we're trapped in there with these characters for so long that it it feels i get what they're trying to do but Mm -hmm. it 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 kind of uh pulls you down just a little bit like it it start it starts to become a liability instead of a strength although um, one thing that you and i were kind of grappling with before we started recording is that I have immense respect for for what this film is trying to accomplish, oh, yes. and for and for what it is as well uh, on a technical level. Some of the some of the choreography of of the camera work and some of the edits, uh, and of course the performances, everything about it is is a top notch production. Mm-hmm. Only problem is it's not exactly a production that I I want to live in mm-hmm. for as long as, for as long as they they want me to 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 be you know, here. Yeah. Yeah, to be here in this this scummy mildew covered tub. <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel about. I that's how I kind of feel about Lars von Trier. Is like, I like his. I I like experiencing his his movies, and I like. I guess I liked the experience of this somewhat. It was just a bit more exhausting than I was looking for. Um, at least I know with von Trier, I'm like, I know what I'm getting myself into. I'm going to be uncomfortable, and I'm going to be frustrated. This, I was not expecting that. So maybe if I was primed a bit more, if someone would be like, hey, it's kind of challenging, it's going to be a bit more frustrating, I might have not, not put it on the calendar and done it on my own time and like prime myself to prepare for that. Um, but yeah, jumping into it, expecting to see one thing, and it's like, oh, no, 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 it's a different thing. So that might have been more frustrating for me. I think different scenario, I would have enjoyed it more. Yeah, it's very difficult for me to put my finger on exactly how I feel about this film uh, because, like, the way we're talking about it sounds like I, I hated it or something. No. It's, like, it's a garbage film. It's, it's really nobody not. should watch it. it. No, it's really not. Like, I, I didn't feel bad about, like, wasting my time or something. It's just, it's very frustrating. And part of the problem with, with this particular math problem is that that's the intention. Mm-hmm. Is that this movie is is handcrafted to be aggravating very much only only problem is I, i'm i'm not entirely sure if i was okay with that yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but i recognize what they're trying to do and in trying to do that they were wildly successful so i guess good on you but um yeah on a technical level though like i i do think it's kind of indisputable this this film is very very solid there's some really cool lensing going on in fact uh do you know the uh the uh I forget the phrase they use for it, but it's the production logo, the the little video clip for a studio canal. Uh, it, it's like it looks like a a series of like twirling prisms or like or shards of glass or something, and just like light shining through them. Um, there, there's a lot of lensing tricks they did in this movie, especially during the concert scenes where I noticed that, and it's just a really eerie kind of like ethereal effect that it's. It's not a special effect by any means. It's just somebody brought a really cool lens kit and had a good idea, and it looks fantastic in the film. But um, the movie does have a really strong opener uh, until we get backstage, and, yeah, and, right. the, and, and then it starts to get... Uh, it's kind of interesting, the title, Her Smell, uh, because this this movie, I, I don't actually know what that title refers to. Part of me wanted to say maybe it had something to do with her daughter at the end. I think so, yeah. That that's that's what my gut tells me. But one thing that it wasn't because of the title of the movie; it was just strictly an observation, completely separate from the title. One thing that I did notice about this film is that it looks smelly. Mm-hmm. This movie has has a film like like covering every scene in it that that just looks scummy and looks like it smells like like balls and armpit. 
<laughs> yes, it smells like it smells like sweaty armpits. It yeah. smells like hot, spicy ass. Yeah, <laughs> I get what you mean. Yes, um, it. Uh, I mean, again, though, on a on a production design level, well, job well done. Yeah, <laughs> like like they they successfully did that. And one thing that I don't want to completely derail us too late. Already did it, but um, I was telling you this before we started recording. This this movie may have one of the most attractive casts mm-hmm. in recent memory. It's it's kind of baffling actually. Like do yourself a favor, dear listener, and just like Google the movie's cast and and pay attention to how how many dollars in the makeup and hair budget went towards making all of these absolutely gorgeous people, man, woman or otherwise. And uh, like it went towards making them look like ass, mm-hmm. <laughs> because each and every one of these people, if you look at their headshot on Google, they don't look like that in their daily life. It it takes sustained effort, time, and money to make these beautiful people look like total fucking shit. <laughs> it's true. Even, like I'm just gonna run down the cast real quick. I mean, Elizabeth Moss, she's a very very beautiful woman. She is made to look not so hot in this movie. In fact, a lot of comparisons were made in a lot of reviews I read for this, comparing her to Courtney Love. In Courtney Love's, like, worst moments of her life. Yeah. Which is not a good thing. That's not something to be prideful about. Then then we have, like, a whole string of actresses who are actually retired models. Mm-hmm. Like, Cara Della Vig- Vigny. I, however the fuck you say her name. She started out as a model. Now she's a top-tier actress, apparently. Whole acting method based on eyebrows. And as Kyle had pointed out before we started recording, they had to, like, apply fake acne to her face just to dress her down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then Agnes Dane, who plays Mari. Apparently she was, like, one of the biggest models of the 2010s or some shit. And then Gail Rankin. She's, like, and then Amber Heard. And then even even the guy who plays Yaima. Uh, the the shaman or whatever, oh, uh, yeah. the back the backstage figure. Uh, I always joked about him as being the world's most attractive crackhead uh, because he's on the uh, uh, Netflix Jessica Jones show. Uh, the act the actor's name is uh, Eka Darville, um, and he's supposed to be playing like like a crack addicted neighbor of hers. And I'm like, oh, he's gonna clean up real nice because mm-hmm. like the whole time he's like he has like a like layers of makeup applied to him to make him look like have like chapped lips and like look all ratty and stuff and then the whole time i'm just looking at his basic bone structure i'm like oh hell no this guy's gonna be super fucking handsome later in the series and sure enough by like episode five or whatever he's a fucking male model mm. Uh, yeah, but the list goes on. Like everybody in this cast, including Eric Stoltz, who is probably in his fifties by now, still fucking got it. He's still got some juice, man. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Surprisingly, uh, when I heard his voice, I'm like, "Oh, that's Eric Stoltz." And I saw him, like, "Oh, wow, he looks really good." Um, <laughs> it's like you look really good when you don't have pounds of makeup on your fucking face, <laughs> like like every other movie you've done. <laughs> yeah, well, there's ones in particular. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, the mask is yeah. what Kyle's alluding to, but he's he's done plenty of other movies, like The Fly Two, where he was just covered in pounds of makeup appliances, and then even in Anaconda, where he didn't have pounds of makeup appliances, he still had to swallow a fucking hornet or whatever and get a tracheotomy on the spot. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> um, anyway, where were we? Uh, oh yeah, the movie opens with uh, a vignette, uh, which serves as like chapter breaks uh, for each of our five scenes. Um, and I believe this first one, it's uh, they do a neat thing with the footage here, where it's like 
it's all like four by three so it's supposed to give the impression that it's you know on a 90s vhs camera or something or an eight millimeter what have you and i think this was them celebrating uh getting a, a magazine cover right yeah i think it was rolling stone cover yeah and they're all having a great old time it's it's the three gals uh it's a uh, ali mari and uh, becky uh who by the way her chosen surname is a uh, becky something um, that's that was a theme that I was I was trying to track throughout the film, is that I I don't know if this is if this is unique to the the punk world or certain parts of the musical landscape, but the like stage persona mm-hmm. seems to be a thing that is is a component of living a, as a performer in general, re- regardless of whether it's music or not. But um, I noticed that like virtually every musician in this film has a well even some of the non-musicians have chosen names rather than you know birth names um and it seems it seems to be a thematic element of the of the story it's not there by accident is what i'm getting at i know that the sex pistols had their their names like johnny rotten sid vicious um but i'm not sure how common it was for like 70s and 80s punks punk bands um i'm sure that in the 90s there were bands that like did that um but yeah it might just be a common thing for punk rock i know definitely uh marilyn manson his all of his people all of his uh bandmates had uh, made up names well in the in the context of this story what what jumped out at me about that was that um by the time we get to the end of the story uh it's no surprise like you can tell from minute one that we're kind of turning the story in this direction but uh, in Becky's case in particular, in Elizabeth Moss's character's case, uh, she's kind of distancing herself from herself. Like, there's mm-hmm. an attempt to separate Rebecca uh, Ademczyk, I think her her name is. Something it, Polish, yeah. Yeah, it, it, sound, it sounded like Polish or Czech or something. And uh, she's trying to distance, like, her current self from her past self. Um, and it seems it seems to be something that can be applied to a lot of the characters in the story, where there's some attempt to like run away from yourself, like escape to the stage, essentially, like slip into that persona. Um, but yeah, her her chosen name is Becky something, which I think thematically is important, just because it's like there's an she's like the loudest personality in the room, and yet her chosen name is to be anonymous. Yeah. It's like hmm, that that's puzzling, but. Um, Immediately following that opening vignette, uh, we we see the three gals like lined up backstage, getting ready to do a show. And uh, one thing that was interesting about the presentation of the movie is that whenever we do musical performances in the movie, we play the whole song. Oh, I hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. I said that without an opinion. I was just kind of baiting you. It drives, <laughs> it drives me insane when they do the whole song. One, there's three. There's three whole songs in this movie. Uh, yeah, oh, and then you get uh, acoustic performances from, from Becky in between stage oh, performances gosh, yeah, and stuff as well. Uh, yeah. So there's quite a bit of music in this movie. But yeah, every time we're on stage, um, and even when we're not on stage, we play the whole song. We don't just cut away for convenience of the story. And that, that was an interesting directorial choice. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if I agree with it, um, but it, it was definitely a, ch- a choice. Um, and I guess I guess if you're telling a story about musicians, maybe that that lends some credibility, uh, especially considering how much stress is put on 
the importance of of the work and the music like from becky's perspective like so much of her story is centered around uh trying and failing and trying again to get the work done so obviously it's like the most important thing in her world so maybe this is the film's way of signaling to us the viewer that this is important to her therefore it should be important to us i don't know i'm just talking out my ass at this point (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I, they did do, they did spend a lot of time, and it's done really well, the stage performance sequences, especially the end one, uh, it's done really well, because there's a lot of people on the stage, um, but it was probably a lot of work to get, uh, to get all, all those shots, just them actually doing the songs. I think, uh, Green Room did it really well. They do, like, part of one song, and then they go into their next stuff, and the Nazis all love it. I was just talking about that movie with my girlfriend the other day, actually. You're going to have her watch it? I'm not going to have her watch it, I don't think, but mm. uh, I was talking about Joe Cole, uh, Jiu-Jitsu Kid. Oh, yeah, uh, crisscross applesauce. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, series, uh, it's a it's a British series called uh, Gangs of London that I actually bought the Blu-ray for because it's from the same director as the Raid films, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't find it available to view anywhere uh i think it was like locked down on like strictly british streaming services um so i just went out and bought the blu-ray because uh, i'm i i'm in that camp when it comes to that director at this point um i'll watch anything he makes um and i still haven't watched it yet but he's he's the lead in it and i've seen him in one other movie besides uh, green room and i've i've been consistently impressed so far so we'll see if he can hold up, up to that standard yeah um but yeah uh the uh, the performance like one of the things uh, that I like to do when when watching scenes like this is just keep an eye on on things like blocking and eye lines like no no shot ends up in the finished edit of a film on accident so I was trying to keep track of like any any fleeting glances or, or any visual cues as to the relationship of these characters at this point in time and one thing that was really 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 obvious uh, was that Becky stands totally distant from the other two members of the band i mean there's only three of them and yet becky is like totally as 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 little real estate as there is on the stage they positioned her as far away as possible from the other two Uh, meanwhile our bassist and our our drummer are like shoulder to shoulder with each other and they're kind of exchanging very like intimate glances with each other as you would expect given that they're playing together while becky is like pushed all the way to the like the tip of the stage and is physically separated from everybody and there's also just like a couple of weird glances shot from mari that maybe it's just the actress but uh she did a lot of interesting face acting in this movie that i I actually found very compelling and not to totally derail us here kyle but oh we are we are 31 minutes in and we haven't even started the movie (laughs) (laughs) sorry um Okay. Anyway, uh, we do we do one song. Uh, it's the encore, yeah. Yeah, it was just the encore, so we're all done there, and then we head backstage, and uh, immediately we we head into handheld camera work. Yeah. Where we we just have this. I think this film was actually shot on film, uh, so that would explain why it looks quite handsome. But uh, the style of handheld cinematography that we're doing here, it's very intimate, but it's also claustrophobic to the point that a lot of the framing like we we're just like pushed up into people's faces half the time like if it feels like this camera person is just like 
sliding along the walls like, mm-hmm. they just don't have any breathing room and that contributes to that like that scuzzy kind of film that seems to coat the entirety of the film there's a particular scene i'm thinking of in nymphomaniac uh where uma thurman confronts her husband it this the whole opening sequence reminded me exactly of that we're like looking over like we have somebody's shoulder uh like just kind of like we'll see elizabeth moss's face and there's like somebody's shoulder taking up a quarter of the frame um yeah it's really not manic but like the the amount of time we spend it's like we're trying to get it into focus and then like like a millisecond of getting to the person we need to we immediately cut to another like something else like it's just kind of rapid in a way yeah, and the way we're doing our focus pulling, a lot of times, like you said, it almost has that like caught off guard quality to it, where mm-hmm. people are just coming into focus by the time we cut away from them, and it, it has a very organic feel to it, but it it's it's unsettling. Like it's uh, one, like a review I read for this film was that it it's kind of daring you to turn it off within its first fifteen twenty minutes. Oh, I and was I, tempted. I am I'm inclined to agree. It it's it's a deeply unpleasant film to look at at least in its first hour or so um and the the type of energy that's throwing around is even more so than the cinematography and the blocking of the scenes maybe the worst part of it for me because we're we're stuck with becky for so much of this opening chunk of the movie where she she's strung out on all all manner of things like i don't even think we even get into what substances she's using in this film it's clear that i mean it was pretty clear from the way that she was acting she's on some kind of upper i'm pretty sure it was cocaine because we definitely have uh what's her name mary uh the the bassist or the tall chick uh she's definitely doing bumps in the uh in the bathroom and i think we see becky do cocaine but she's also she's also knocking them back just just knocking back booze and she just we get a we get a baby like almost immediately there's <laughs> almost immediately there's a baby and it gets handed to the drummer who's a sweetheart uh she's really really nice uh she gets the baby and i thought it was her baby at first but then becky comes in and is like oh no it's her baby i'm like oh jeez and she's not super messed up right now you could tell she's kind of high energy and i think she was a little reluctant to hand her the baby at first but then she you know hand, passes her off i'm like oh this is becky's baby and this starts Becky just going off the rails. Uh, here's the checklist. She confrontation with uh, her husband, um, confrontation with husband's girlfriend, and then we get a shaman in here pretty quick, and we start doing vo- some voodoo stuff. Um, voodoo fucking magic man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we get some yeah, some King Willie voodoo. Um, <laughs> Pretty abrupt. The other side. <laughs> that actually would have been awesome casting if they would have had King Willie do it. King Willie <laughs> and and guest starring King Willie <laughs> yeah. as the backstage shaman. Yeah, you can tell that the uh, the drummer's uncomfortable, but we get like a little moment where um, I think the yeah the uh, the taller one bass. I can't remember her name. Is it uh, Mari? Mari. It is Mari. Okay. Yeah, she kind of uh she doesn't match her energy but she she's getting close to uh, becky's energy here so we kind of lead to led to believe that mari's a bit more loose and is dealing with her in a different way yeah mari's more enabling mm-hmm. uh a- as we'll see in later scenes she's she's quicker to put her foot down like her tolerance is lower but mari definitely has a bit of that in her and she's willing to just go with the flow but um when dan steven shows up 
uh, who, who is um, Becky's, daddy. yeah, Becky's baby daddy. Uh, when he shows up and everybody starts singing at him and like putting their hands all over him. Oh, so annoying. I I was Dan Stevens in that moment. Like like that that is that is me at most parties where it's just like don't don't. Don't touch me. Don't don't, touch don't me. sing at me. Don't ask me to sing with you. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I think this is what Henry Cavill goes through. I mean, considering how much he's uh, sexually harassed in every interview I've seen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he has to deal with this on a daily basis. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the cost of being an absurdly handsome man is people just want to get some of that juice. Yeah. <laughs> the only way to get it is to put hands on you. It's like, dude, <laughs> like enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, poor Dan Stevens is just like he's just rolling his eyes, and he's just he's just trying to keep this baby safe, essentially. Well, so we were watching this, and like he's an awful parent because while this is like I we're, I don't want to get into the details here, but just put it this way. Um, let's just describe how what Becky is doing. So Becky is going around room to room, different parts of the room. Uh, Kind of saying mean things, but then giggling and then rhyming and talking in platitudes. And also, it, also summoning the dark forces. Yes, also summoning <laughs> dark forces. Bump, bump, shot, bump, bump, shot. You're a dick. I'm. Yeah, it's just for 20 <laughs> minutes this is going yeah. on. Um, and while this is all happening, there's a baby back here that's like one year, one year old, one, one year old baby. And we're like, why is he still here? Get the child away from her. Um, but I guess it makes sense. I guess he's been trying to get her to sign divorce papers. And I'm assuming that's why he was there. To, well, to let her see the kid for a little bit. But I think that's why he stuck around, was to get the divorce papers. Yeah, uh, there's a, a running through line through through a lot of these scenes that uh, Becky is kind of running away from life a little bit um, yeah. in the form of having to sign some very important legal documents. Also, uh, she develops many lawsuits uh, over the lot. course of the film <laughs> many lawsuits double digits in fact <laughs> um <laughs> that's that's an accomplishment man <laughs> yeah but, but um on top of that she also has other responsibilities that she's continually dodging um and yeah uh this these documents as far as i understand do not get signed no. for years years after this scene but yeah dan stevens is just here to talk about that and and financial matters as well, uh, because apparently uh, the band abruptly canceled a European tour that they were just just about to launch into. So they were so close to it, in fact, that Becky packed a bag for it or something. Uh, but apparently her emotional, psychological state just was not not good uh, to do that. So she abruptly canceled it. And now uh, finances for both her management and her band and by extension, her baby daddy uh, are kind of up in the air. It's kind mm -hmm. of a precarious situation to be in. Oh, oh yeah, and there is a baby in the room uh, that very nearly gets handed off to the shaman at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's uh, that's probably not a good choice. But I like how uh, whenever Becky charges into the room with with her uh, her Scooby Squad of uh, shaman and like some elderly spiritual advisor of some sort that he yes, has with her. Her spiritual her spiritual advisors, we'll just call them that. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, yeah. The guy kind of looks like Lloyd Kaufman uh, from mm. Troma. Um, whenever they bust into whatever rooms backstage, because as Kyle had said, like very accurately, she's like 
dipping in and out of all sorts of offices and back rooms like this this woman is totally unsupervised like yeah. she is off the chain like she is not supposed to be in half of the places she's finding her way into every time they kick open one of these doors they bring their purple mood lighting with them mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it it's a little wonky because it's like where's where is that light source it's like oh it's movie magic you know <laughs> I, th- I think this would be a good time apparently uh, I want to get to the Amber Heard part what, Z what's her name in the in the movie uh, Zelda Zelda they call her Z um, but uh, apparently in an interview uh, the director based this performance or wrote this character based off of Axel Rose uh, and if you don't know anything about Axel Ro- Axel Rose when I read that I'm like oh yeah this is this is exactly what I've what I understand touring with Axel Rose in the 80s and 90s was like uh, he was an absolute tyrant yeah I mean you can look up look look up uh, just put um, Axel Rose asshole in YouTube and you'll see him. <laughs> Uh, jumping into the crowd and punching people, uh, he he walked off stage just completely like like at the beginning of a set. Somebody had a camera and he's just like, well, because the security sucks, I'm going home. I guess he's done that on a few occasions, but yeah, he was just an absolute nightmare apparently. Jeez, um, yeah. I I know he was a nightmare. I've kind of assumed that he grew past it in more oh, recent yeah. years. I would assume so. Um, well, they're touring. But... He's, he's touring with Slash again. Like they like they have quite a few of the original lineup. So, yeah, they've made amends. Yeah, I, I mean, you said it right up right up at the top there, that, like, these these kind of, like, I don't know, making and breaking the band stories, there's something always compelling about them, and part of it comes from almost their, like, archetypal nature, mm-hmm. where it's there's a familiarity to the circumstances. And in general, just, like, when you think about what it takes to be a performer, let alone a musician tends to attract dramatic personalities and Mm -hmm. and in terms of you know creating fireworks if you're trying to tell a compelling story one way to do that is just throw a bunch of fucking firecrackers in a glass jar and watch what happens (laughs) wait wait till we cover rockstar one day because that's that's a fun one that's a real fun uh, downward spiral movie yeah you've spoken highly of that one in the past i don't know it at all uh beyond what you've told me yeah uh someday we can do uh (laughs) like four of Mark Wahlberg's good movies because I think there might be four. <laughs> uh, there may be exactly four. Um, I know of three, uh, but I'm sure there's one I'm missing. Uh, we, I mean, I don't want to do Boogie Nights just because that's a movie that I it's, like too much. It, I like it too much. It, it would be too yeah, long an episode. It, it, would just, it would just be five hours of the Chris we, Farley show. We would be <laughs> stuck. We would be stuck saying, do you want to kiss me on the mouth for just like... <laughs> For the whole time, but yeah, she's going off the rails, and then um, I'm guessing the reason why uh, Howard, their manager, decides to set this up, I guess she he wants them to open for Zelda, uh, who I guess is somebody that is either a rising star or was of their same star st- status, and now they're kind of on the decline, and I can't believe he tried to put that together because the. Becky is laboring under the illusion that she is much bigger than she actually is at this point. And he's kind of like, well, I thought you guys could talk about it, but we're led to believe this is probably the best best for them because they just canceled a tour. This is a way for you to make money. And she's just like, not not having it. Yeah, actually, that's something I wanted to run run by you, Kyle. Was that I, I was struggling at times to, I guess, come to terms with exactly how how both famous and talented Becky and by extension something she 
are supposed to be because we do see in one of those like candid video scenes that that i think it's the next chapter break we do see in that that they obtained a platinum record Mm -hmm. so they're doing just they've been on magazine covers they've they've had presumably multiple albums um and then when we're introduced to the acre girls like the next generation uh, Mm -hmm. femme femme punk uh, band um the way they speak of her makes it sound like she's and she's an incredible talent like she she's like she's on a different level but Uh, i feel like i feel like we don't really get a good sense of that just based on what we see in the movie it's more just like how the characters talk about her well early 90s was a great time to be uh a white person with a guitar because there's (laughs) like back then it was just like you have a four-piece band sign them what do they have just vaguely any talent yeah everybody was getting signed back then so there was a decent market for like these mid like not super famous like blink 182 but you could have like mid-range like whole l7 that could definitely do well like you could you know tour and stuff like that i think the closest thing that their band is supposed to be is to whole and they do have good songs like courtney loves band like they, they did have a couple of good songs um but there was no longevity uh for that scene like it just it didn't last long it fizzled pretty quick and it turned to pop punk which did really take off in the late 90s and early 2000s. You were there. Um, oh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that that's kind of the transition, is they're supposed to be kind of a grungier, real, like, really influenced by punk and really embrace that lifestyle. Where the three new ones, the Acre Girls, is that what it is? Their, yeah. sound, their sound is much more pop punk. They're just much more poppy, uh, which was definitely on the rise at the time. So I, I did find that interesting. It makes more sense now, knowing that it's supposed to take place in the 90s, because I was watching this as if it was contemporary. I'm like, uh, big star. I'm like, absolutely not. There's still a market for bands like this, but it's nowhere near what it was in the 90s. Oh, yeah. No, at, at one point, uh, Allie, the drummer, does have an interesting line of dialogue where it's it's after she's gone away and come back. Uh, she says something about um, she was very comfortable playing in church basements, mm-hmm. and part of me wants oh. to say that it's like this. This band seems like maybe their sound and their audience in particular that's where it belongs. Like that's where it, that's where the spirit of it truly lies. Well, that's um, where a but, lot of. But like you said, it was the '90s and contracts were up for grabs. That's where we play. That's I mean that uh, that's where we would practice. Was we had one kid whose dad was a preacher. And that's, I mean, a lot of the kids I played with were in youth groups and stuff like that. So they would let us use churches on the weekend to play in because that's where the drum set was. So, I mean, it was very common, at least for us in the Midwest, to, to do that. Yeah, but I, I just thought it was interesting because, like, whenever I think punk, like, I always think it must be really difficult for, for those people steeped in that lifestyle to, like we saw with SLC punk, or you have to make that agree with agreement with yourself where it's like, by by putting on the suit and getting paid i'm disgracing that which i stand for (laughs) so it's like by becoming a successful punk does that make me not punk (laughs) those are the venues you want to play like i I like that band in salt lake city punk they they were awesome uh they had an awesome breakdown so you watch yourself uh when bob when bob gets into the crowd i'm like oh yeah that's a that's a badass breakdown i i just remember the opening of the movie um but uh, what were we talking about we lost it uh well basically long story short they do meet up with amber heard's character zelda who as kyle had pointed out is like a contemporary of theirs like they're i think they're supposed to be kind of on the same tier 
but Becky has an inflated ego and doesn't want to open for Zelda because she thinks it's beneath her. Uh, she throws a hissy fit and storms out of that that particular backstage room because she she needs to visit all the rooms in, in one night. Um, and then she grabs hold of the baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she dips out into a different room. Dan Stevens has to track her down, but not before she trips and falls on something and uh, drops the baby. Uh, baby's okay, but uh, she was holding that baby the whole time. And uh, next time we see her, she's laying on the ground in the fetal position with a pile of green puke next to her her uh, bleeding head, by the way. So yes. she did hit something pretty fucking solid. Yeah, and I thought that this was going to be like, okay, she's uh, she's going to take a step back maybe. Maybe this is a wake-up call. Oh, no, we're just getting started. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Th- this is, I guess, supposed to be the beginning of the end of the band. Because uh, mm-hmm. this is uh, this is in, like the early '90s, and then uh, immediately following that, we get our chapter break in the form of uh, some home video footage of of the gals hanging up their platinum record. So it's it's unclear exactly the sequencing of all this uh, handheld footage, like this uh, candid footage. Uh, I got the sense that we're jumping around in time because later on we see her like holding her baby. When, when it's very much a baby, mm-hmm. um, which would precede the, the beginning of the movie. But um, next sequence is the recording studio. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she Where had... we will remain for the next hour. <laughs> for the remainder of the evening, yes. Um, yes, the recording studio of which she is occupied. Uh, she's, she, they were supposed to be recording, and I just don't think they could get anything done, which I've been to band practices where, like, you just start playing stuff and you put together a song or something and it's a lot of fun. And then other times you're just like, man, I'm just not feeling it. I've got nothing today, no inspiration. And you just kind of dick around. But as a professional, you rec- you set a time studio space and it's expensive uh, and you actually have to sit down and do work. So it just seems like she's not wanting to do the work. But uh, Howard says that, yeah, you guys have got it for now, but I have another band coming in and you're actually eating into their time and she is just like with a with a guitar doing nothing yeah actually there were times where she was playing the guitar where i think she was supposed to be like doing something thoughtful and actually spinning some good lyrics i don't know if it's just me but even even in those parts i was like that's just not very good it's not Honestly, they're not a great. Actually, when they were when they the first song that they were playing, I'm just like they're not very good. Uh, <laughs> like sorry, uh, but I think maybe in that moment she was not supposed to sound very good. Uh, yeah, it, it's I'm not sure actually because there are times when it's supposed to be pretty obvious she's doing a bad job, but then there's other times where something about the way the cameras fixate on her, it's like I think I'm supposed to think this is good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When she plays the piano for her daughter, I'm like, oh, she's gonna do a whole song. Uh, all yeah. Brian Adams heaven okay we're gonna do the whole thing uh, sure yeah yeah, yeah. but yeah but, this, uh, this is <laughs> this ahead. this scene uh I think we should describe uh, this needed chapter titles this needed like inglorious bastards chapter two agony because <laughs> actually wow um I could be totally wrong Kyle being as I know you've seen that movie at least five times as many times as I have yeah uh, I just watched it a couple the, weeks ago <laughs> how did i know um, i want to say the uh, the scene breakdown in that movie is actually comparable to this mm-hmm. where the, there's very few scenes in inglorious bastards um and that would be something that tarantino kind of got really into for that stretch of time because by the time we move on to the hateful eight 
Oh, like people it's were a criticizing him. Yeah, people were criticizing of, of just directing a stage play. It's like not quite, but you know, it does it does bear some resemblance. But yeah, the number of scenes is uh it's not very great. Um, so I guess comparable to this film. But yeah, this uh, studio sequence is unbearably long. Mm-hmm. Um, largely, it comes back to what I was saying about the the Safdie brothers stuff was that there's a lack of movement that is it's irritating uh it feels it feels like we're kind of puttering about where it feels like you very easily could have cut chunks of both this performance which again is very very good what we got uh and just some of the script in general and it wouldn't have detracted from the end product at all um it gets very repetitive is kind of the problem I've been in situations like this also where you have one person or maybe yeah maybe just two people that are like goofing around like two of us are like trying to take it seriously and the other two are just kind of like messing around or uh, just not doing what they're supposed to be doing and it's very frustrating so this sequence I was just like I could kind of I could kind of feel for them it's like we're trying to accomplish something here and she is completely screwing it up and she accuses them of being lazy not wanting to do the work so it seems like they did work, but she's just not stopping. Like she's not. Maybe they didn't get anything done. I don't know. Yeah, it it's a. I'm not entirely certain exactly what the situation's supposed to be here. Um, I know she. I know that she broke into the studio. She's not supposed to be there right now. Uh, she's just choosing to to occupy the space. She's been there since like two a.m. or something, getting absolutely nothing done. Um, but the the thing that really makes the scene like tense and I guess effective in some ways is that feeling of showing up to do a job and like in the case of these acre girls that show up it's like we're we're here this is our first recording gig all we want to do is do a good job like we just don't want to rock the boat and we want to do a good job and it it you can kind of put yourself in their shoes where it's like being I've I've certainly been at a party or two where somebody blew their top and we all just kind of have to like stand around and pretend we're okay with it. Um, And it certainly has that kind of atmosphere to it. Only problem is we do that exact same beat. Like we explore that exact same emotional territory, like three times in the same scene. (laughs) It's like enough with the clown. (laughs) Yeah. She goes, uh, so she, I think she comes out and argues with the bandmates and Howard. Uh, and I think she goes back in, and this is where she's kind of like sitting at the guitar playing something, and the guy's like, oh, wait, this is gold. We're going to record this. I think it was just the moment you were talking about, like, am I supposed to think It's this one good? of them, yeah. Oh, it's like, is that supposed to be good? Because it's <laughs> really not. <laughs> were, we, were we recording? Uh, <laughs> feel, 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 feel my feet. <laughs> it's a, it, and that's what it felt like to me. But yeah, but uh, her recording is uh, cut short when the three excited Acre girls uh, see her and she sees them. And this is where you're just like, oh, no, like this is going to go awful. And this is probably the most agonizing scene of the whole film is is this exchange. Like they're super excited to see her and she's kind of like you don't know what she's what's doing. Like you don't know what she's going to do. This was a really weird exchange between all of them. Well, part of part of what makes the Becky character so obnoxious, at least in the first half of the movie, is that shaman character, Yaima, that she was like 
hanging out with backstage and trying to use to perform literal voodoo fucking magic on her uh, her baby daddy's new gal um she's very much swept up in that school of spirituality very much and it it flows into her monologues like this is not dialogue this is her monologuing at people and it comes with its own school of dream logic that we the audience are never privy to Mm -mm. so a lot of the things that are coming out of her mouth and it's a whole lot of things i don't have an explanation for it it's purely just it's nonsense it's jim morrison nonsense yeah it's the kind of thing that if I was at a party, and again, if if some gal that looked like Elizabeth Moss like put hands on me and started saying these things, I'd be like, "Excuse me, ma'am, I have to leave. I have to catch the E. Uh, I gotta yeah. go." <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can't be here. <laughs> I forgot. Uh, first, she has the falling out with the drummer. She just snaps yeah. and melts down. She's like, "I'm done. I'm 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 done." And she's just un like she's kind of being a dick about it too she's like oh nope she's gonna keep going she's just gonna keep talking uh we can't hear her kind of thing like she's in the recording studio grabbing her stuff and she just storms out and i'm like well you've lost one bandmate so let's go ahead and push it as far as we can how about that yeah i like i, I really like the dynamic between ali and and mari mm-hmm. uh, because ali as we pointed out she she has a she has less tolerance for this shit like she puts her foot down and she's she's out of there within the first 10 minutes of the scene like mm-hmm. she dips out and she says this is the end goodbye um mari on the other hand uh tries to play it cool and then excuses herself uh to the restroom to you know have a few bumps of cocaine yeah um and she comes in she comes back to the recording booth in tears and if i remember right eric stoltz like gives her not a stern talking to but he basically makes it known that like we lost one of you. We can't lose both of you. I am leaning very heavily on you to make sure that something comes out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've seen by Mari's reaction to, to this high-pressure scenario, not exactly the best equipped to handle it. And she's not exactly... She's not really quiet about it either. Like, as the scene progresses, like, she really just barely holds it together. Uh, she she and her she and Becky are get pretty venomous with each other. Uh, it's pretty nasty. But um, I love when the Acre Girls show up. Um, there's actually a really cool shot here where um, where so there's there's a, a block of glass separating the recording booth from the studio portion of the building, and Becky's just in there strumming along on a guitar by herself, and then the camera just kind of holds on her, and we're viewing her through the glass. And she looks directly at the camera, and you hear all the Acre Girls say, "Oh, she's seen us." Yeah. <laughs> and like the the slowness of her movements is like a gorilla or a lion in the zoo. And yeah. It's just like, oh, oh, oh no. shit, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, she's she's seen us. She saw us. And I think they even make some sort of mention about a lion and like, uh, yeah, Mari compares her. Yeah. yeah, and so that was a very explicit visual reference, and I, actually, I thought it was very comical because <laughs> it's, it's diminutive little Elizabeth Moss in like her her most mom outfit you could imagine. Like mm-hmm. she is not dressed to show off, and she's just like, <sighs> no, <Nah. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like a silverback that's spotted an intruder. <laughs> yeah, I think she goes in there and she's basically like, I'm gonna recruit these girls. Very like. She's kind of being a dick about it. She's like, oh, let's hear what this new sound is. Let's go in there. You guys want to go play, basically? And uh, she goes in there, and she's like, you can tell she's 
I think she's just like look, look, look at them as like a band, and they were really poppy. And I thought she was gonna say you guys suck, but she basically recruits them, and she's like, "This is gonna be my new band." And I think she has the falling out with Mari here. Yeah, like I said, though, the only difference is Mari doesn't like a hundred percent tell her off. Mm-hmm. It's more just like they grit their teeth at each other, and Becky walks away from it just like living in in her own reality, whereas Mari is just like stewing in her her anger. And, and displeasure at the situation um but yeah uh becky just rambles on and on and on about like the tremendous boon that has arrived on her doorstep in the form of a new band which she is hoping to use to replace her old band meanwhile they're their own entity and yeah. they're trying to get off the ground on on the strength of their own talent and music um but we get a scene where she kind of intimidates she kind of like badgers them into picking up their instruments and, and like playing a sample of their work for her and it's her expression isn't a hundred percent readable here but did you think that she was like aggravated by like were, was she like blown away by their talent or was she frustrated at like having a mirror held up to her what did you get out of that well there's something that i didn't quite understand uh they they mentioned that they can read sheet music and she's like oh you're more talented than me. Like she kind of alludes that she doesn't know how to read music. Um, So I think she was kind of intimidated, like seeing like uh, three young, attractive girls, a a band that are pretty, I mean, it's not my kind of music, but uh, I think she knew that they were going to be something. And whether she liked that music or not, I think she was like, oh, I can use these people. And they're impressionable. They're very impressionable too. She can tell how much they like her. Yeah, I forgot about the the sheet music comment. I thought that was very telling. It's like she, she's not necessarily intimidated by them, but she there there's definitely a bit of a sting there. Mm-hmm. It's like, "Oh, th- this is the new breed and I'm the old one." But uh around this time like after they've demoed for her and stuff, this is where we get some more time just devoted to watching her uh play by herself in the studio. Um and it's it's a listful tune of some sort again i wasn't sure how i was supposed to be reacting to this but uh finally after an hour into the movie we we get out of the studio Uh, we have another of those uh home video sequences where we're introduced to virginia madsen who plays becky's mother um hanging out backstage with them presumably very early in their career i guess in their their heyday um and then we get uh I guess the the nightmare show. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I really like the uh, the uh, visual signal to us as Dan Stevens is heading into the venue. Um, the camera just like fixates on the security guard, uh, and he's like half lit. He's got like the Luke Skywalker lighting on his face, where it's like half in it half in just like pure blackness, and then half in bathed in red. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like one of those things where in the moment you're like. Now, why would you why would you focus on the security guard? Mm-hmm. And then, like, 15, 20 minutes later, it's like, oh, oh he's gonna okay. come. In. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's gonna be important later. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this begins the uh, the nightmare show chapter of the film. This is where, basically, am I understanding this correctly? We're we're trying to do a show here, um, but Becky has yet to arrive and therefore there can be no show and apparently the venue is like coming dangerously close to closing time Mm -hmm. like the crowd has just been hanging out waiting waiting for i i don't even know if was were they like the opener i 
think they, that's what that's what Steph said when we were watching it. I that's think, what I thought. Yeah, but they would just they would just not go the 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 open. They would no, the, just skip the headliner the would probably just go on, right? Yeah, that's why it didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, the headliner's not going to wait. They're just going to go on when they're supposed to go on. So I'm like, I thought maybe that was that wasn't right. But um, what I, I thought it was was he she had the the girls there. I don't know if she's been touring with the girls, but she also had her drummer, the the main girl Allie. Like she was there. So I was under the impression that maybe. She was opening for the three girls, but I wasn't quite sure. Well, as far as I understand it, she she did successfully like combine forces with the Acre girls. Mm. Like I think they're going to do a, a joint show of some sort. But yes, Allie shows up here, so enough time has passed, I guess, that she's cooled down uh, such that she can show up for the, another something she show. Um, but yeah, like we spend a good twenty minutes of this scene. Just it's like waiting for Godot, but waiting for Becky. Uh, basically, everybody's in a panic because hey, uh, the person that literally all the people gathered here to see is, is not here. Um, so we have Virginia Madsen as Becky's mom, and Dan Stevens both hanging out backstage, both with legal documents that they need to present Becky with. Yes. Um, and Allie is here, I guess, partially to to like make up with her as well um meanwhile the acre girls are coming in and uh again they were making me uncomfortable because it seems like every female in in the cast of this this film feels perfectly at home putting hands on dan stevens Mm -hmm. it's like it's got to be a weird position to be in it's like i know i'm dan stevens i'm a very handsome man although a lot of makeup dollars went towards you know making me not look so handsome um but i got a baby like right here and like i'm carrying legal documents for for this for this baby's mother like 24 7 i'm not i'm not exactly in a position to to handle people putting hands on me all the time um, uh but it's just that kind of atmosphere i get it though yeah so they're just kind of, like these girls look like they've gone to the ringer now they've been touring with her they're uh they're a little they have a little bit more um they were like kind of naive and inexperienced but now they seem like they've got some miles like they've been doing some touring or at least playing some shows with uh becky and um i mean there's just a bunch of chitter chatter uh for a while <laughs> until Be- becky barges in like sandy lyle with her uh, camera crew doing a documentary or whatever i, I think she hired like, that's what i'm saying sandy lyle because i'm like i think she hired them to make a documentary and she's gonna try to sell it to like hbo or something <laughs> Oh no, that that seemed really obvious to me that she she brought her own camera crew probably to put a positive spin on her own life. Um, and one thing that like this is a old acting trick, but one thing I noticed is like there's only a handful of instances in the entire movie, but anytime Elizabeth Moss is given free reign to steal a glance at a mirror, uh, she drinks it in. Uh, she gives herself a particular kind of look, especially towards the beginning of the movie, where it's like, it's almost like a bird fixate on its own reflection or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some sort of self-satisfaction that comes from that, um, and a similar vibe comes from her performing for a, like performing in general, but in this case, having a camera crew following her around, it it lends like a narrative thread or like focus to the the chaos of her because when that camera wasn't around in the previous scenes incoherent mm-hmm. like, like she, she, nothing that was coming out of her mouth was at all understandable but here at least with the benefit of a camera and like 
I don't know, some sort of evaluating force or something guiding her hand uh, as she just kind of traipses through the backstage area. She's at least borderline coherent, um, but only just. Um, and I believe this is this is the portion where she kind of has a, a blow up with with Allie, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what started it, but Allie basically just loses it on her. I don't think Allie's done that before. She even says she's like, well, uh, every bully needs that punching bag. She feels like that's kind of her lot in life has just kind of been Becky's punching bag and she snaps on her uh, and walks storms out of course um, and then it really def- like it really spins out of control here because uh, I think this is I think she clocks her uh, I think she clocks Becky pretty good here yeah they kind of give it to each other uh, so Becky gets violent and by the way uh, Yaima is still in tow uh, and we cut back to him during this this physical altercation between Allie and mm. Becky, um, and he's kind of like urging her to to be more violent. Uh, it's been it's been said multiple times in the film at this point, and reiterated constantly by the time we get to the end of it that uh, the baby Tama or Tama, however mm. they end up pronouncing it, seems to be interchangeable, uh, is going to be Becky's downfall according to her spiritual advisors, and she has taken this to heart. Um, and you can tell based on the fact that she's physically in a struggle with her former bandmate uh, at the urgings of her shaman that, uh, yeah, she believes everything that comes out of this guy's mouth, um, regardless of his credibility. But uh, she breaks a bottle and she comes at Allie with it. And I think she she gets a little snip of her cheek. Like she does get a little cut on Allie. Uh, I, I thought cut. that's what happened. Yeah. Or at I- least she made a move to anyway. Yeah, and I think the security guard subdues her. And she gets loose, and I think she stabs the security guard, and then she does not get loose again. <laughs> yeah, she does take a swing on the security guard. Allie, who, as Kyle had said, does not strike me as the type of person who does this sort of thing. Uh, she defends herself, and she, I think she gives her, like, an elbow in the head. Oh, she um, she makes her nose bleed. She gets her. Oh, yeah, she, she gets herself a, a punk nosebleed, which I'm sure... You know, it's like a badge of honor. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Not a big deal. Um, but when she takes a swing at the security guard, the very large security guard, who, as I said, the camera was trained on as we were entering the venue, uh, he ends up handcuffing her and uh, she gets escorted through the crowd, but she breaks free and she makes it up to the stage. And we get uh, a really embarrassing sequence of her just like babbling incoherently into the microphone, into the crowd. And this is a hardcore crowd, but they're not so hardcore to the point that they aren't aware of the fact that this woman is totally nuts. Mm-hmm. Like, like sh- this is not entertaining. This is a problem. Um, probably the ugliest part of it is when she grabs the guitar while she's still handcuffed, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so she she's not exactly to get the she's not exactly able to get the fingering right uh, to get any tunes out of that thing. But um, she does get uh, carried out of the venue. Um, and I believe that's kind of the close of that scene. Yeah. Um, they they literally like draw a curtain to the show. <laughs> like Eric Stoltz gets up on the stage and he's like, "Show's over, folks. Go yeah, home. Go home. <laughs> you will not be refunded." Um, yeah. <laughs> no way. No way, man. Yeah. The next little bit, she get that we get that home video footage, and uh, she's holding her baby, smoking a cigarette, which is yeah. not great. Um, even for the '90s, you're not supposed to be doing that. 
Um, and I think she's already not with uh, Dan Stevens anymore. Like he, I think he's coming to pick her up. Like she's just visiting the baby. Yeah, actually, I was really curious. Like it's never, it's not important at all. But it was, it's a question that, especially in this social media era that we live in today, one question that I always ask myself is, who's holding the camera? Because mm. that, that's a question I don't think I don't think people ask themselves very often but it's a question that i can't help but ask because you know everybody takes photos everybody's posting photos of things but my question is always who took that photo (laughs) um because we have a scene here where as soon as the footage comes up this candid footage like shot on a vhs tape the first thing she says is i want to stay with my baby Mm -hmm. and she's saying like i don't want to tour i don't want to go out i just want to stay with my baby and then dan stevens walks in behind her so he's not holding the camera and he says, I'm here to take the baby. So like like you said, this is clearly after they've separated. I don't think it's supposed to be somebody actually holding the camera. I think it's literally... It has to be, though. <laughs> no, like, but it... I think it makes more sense to think about it as you're, you're using it as a portal. Like, you're using the video, like, having that frame is just like, we're looking into the past. That's what we're looking at, too, looking at right now. So... There's not even actually a camera there, is what I'm getting at. Like, I think these things are just supposed to be seen through that lens as this is the past. I get that, but it's a weird choice because because it's it's like it's handheld. She's talking directly to the camera. Like, mm-hmm. I, I get it. She's nuts. It doesn't make like it's not too far of a stretch to say that she would talk to nobody. But 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 it's just a, a weird way to frame a scene. Is all. I think Howard could have been holding the first two. Yeah. And then this one could have been her mom, and then the next one is the photo shoot. So, I mean, those would be my guess. Howard, Howard. Uh, yeah. Like I said, not important. It's just an observation because clearly it's – this would be like an intimate conversation you would you would expect her to be having with, you know, the father of her child or something. But then he walks into frame and it's like, oh, I guess not. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, um, but, yeah, it's, it's just an aside of her smoking and uh, giving her baby up to Dan Stevens. And then we get maybe the, the first legit silent moment in the whole movie. It really uh, is. It was just an exhale when you get to this. Yeah. It's like, oh. I, I, I was, it was very welcome. And it's just Elizabeth Moss sitting on a couch in a very uh, like folksy house. that uh, The decor is questionable. It's say old. That much. It's very old looking. Um, it's very old. I really liked this this little sequence of her sitting on the couch, and you can hear I think the tea kettle's just starting to steam, but she's just staring off into nothing. And I don't know why I like this her going to make tea, but you can get the sense that she's sober, and you can also get the sense that she has been through the ringer because like she's got a little bit of tremblies, like she doesn't move very quickly. Like you could tell that she's she's been through quite a bit of uh, booze and cocaine. Yeah, it's very good visual shorthand for recovery mm-hmm. um, because routine is always something that is stressed in these circumstances. And the way she makes this tea is like you can tell this is a person that's been doing this every day for mm-hmm. a good, decent while. Uh, because, yeah, like the way she gingerly like walks up to the tea kettle and even has like an egg timer like mm-hmm. just right there ready to go, like... Who, who does that? <laughs> I set a timer for sure, but not. I just do it on my phone. 
she's sitting at the table making her tea, and then for some reason, this car it looked like a Pontiac Firebird uh, coming out, it looked like the silhouette of that uh, pulling up. So I'm like, oh, this is probably Dan. But it made me think of Happy Gil or not Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, where he goes to high school for the first day, and he's in a tea top, and he's yeah. blasting like Ario Speedwagon or something. <laughs> <laughs> he's he like opens up his denim jacket, is just kind of waiting for people to come up to how cool he is, and they're like. Dude, this is the 90s, man. We were totally listening to other stuff. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, the Dan is coming over. That's not his name in the movie. Um, <laughs> May as well be. But he comes over, and we see quite a bit of time has passed because this girl's like six, maybe. I think she's probably like six or seven now, the daughter. Yeah, uh, he brings he brings the daughter, and uh, he's in his dad outfit, which involves you know like a, basically a Christmas sweater. It's a it's a <laughs> it's a it's a Bush uh, Christmas sweater, or like something that Kurt Cobain would wear. I think he wore like the same sweater and smells like Teen Spirit video. Oh yeah, I could see that. Um, but yeah, basically this is a uh, this this moment of exhale is very much what the scene is representative of. So he shows up, he brings the daughter. And he's here to talk serious business with with Becky, but like we're kind of trying to, I don't know, be careful in maneuvering everything because she's obviously kind of in a fragile condition. But he has serious business to bring to her doorstep in the form of like financial concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, where it, one thing that we haven't talked about is that Eric Stoltz is in like dire straits financially throughout this entire fucking film, mm-hmm. uh, largely because of Becky's irresponsibility. Um, uh, but basically he's trying to get Becky to step up and, and help out with raising their daughter. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not really, it's not really a subject that he, he can plunge headfirst into, but he, he tries to pussyfoot around it. And, um, think about who he's dealing with here. And I think he's doing a really good job of dealing with it. Like this is a difficult thing to talk face to face with somebody about. And I think he does a pretty good job but she mentions that she's being sued by promoters uh her bandmates uh venues uh howard like the record company she's like i have absolutely no yeah mom (laughs) yeah her mom's suing her like she's being sued by everybody somehow my dad from beyond the grave (laughs) uh yeah no kidding uh but we also learned that she's a year so she's like i'll be a year sober uh like this friday or something like that um but she's, I guess she has also hasn't left the house in a year. Yeah, she's become temporarily agoraphobic, I guess. Uh, there's some sort of fear, I guess, that all the uh, all the traumas, all the all the bad decisions that she's made over her life will, will come back to her if she leaves this little like fortress she's carved out for herself in the woods. Um, but yeah, all credit to him. He is a much more patient man than I, because mm. uh, he comes to her talking about financial troubles, and she com- she counters it with like, "So I I think I understand why you and I always butt heads. It's because in our past lives, you you and I were brother and sister in a Native American tribe, and you murdered all of our tribe mates. That's why I hate you." It's like. Anyway. Do you have any money? Yeah. <laughs> just like, so do you have any money? Because <laughs> no. everything you just said points to no. <laughs> yeah. So he tells her that uh, Marielle or Marielle, whatever her name is, is actually with him. And yeah. she's like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And she's like, that's all right. She, 
she wants to talk to you. Uh, she's also sober as well. She's like, I don't want her yeah. to see me like this. Like, then she'll understand. She's like, I need to prepare. She's like, grab her and then wait a hundred seconds, and then come in. And then the little girl was like bored or hungry. Oh, she's hungry, and she's gonna make her like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something. And she's like, can you play me a song? And she plays the entirety of Brian Adams' Heaven real quick. And I'm like, well, obviously, uh, Dan and Mari are going to be standing, like, right behind her when she finishes. Uh, is that what happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's what happens. Uh, it's roughly five minutes of screen time because, like I said, every song in this movie is played front to back. Um, it's funny, my connection to that song, I think, came from my time at our high school radio station, which was like a, a dance music station. Mm. Um, there were most certainly remixes of that song. Um, that's mostly how I know it. Uh, so to hear her play it, you know, acoustic piano version of it, I was so, like, I'm used to this with a lot more do- deets and doots. So this doesn't make sense to me. Um, so she gives the girls a little guff, like, oh, you guys are better than me because you know how to read music. Um, and her mom even talks about like, is it my fault? I took her to all these music lessons and singing lessons and all this stuff, but she's sitting here playing the piano and I'm like, you pretty much have to know how to read sheet music to read, to play the piano. Now she's not, you know, Liberace, like going nuts on this thing, but she's playing it. So maybe she, I'm like either that was just a, a gag, like they messed that up. Or she was taking piano lessons, but it doesn't, I don't feel like she'd be, she might be teaching herself to play piano, but it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know enough about music to, to piece that together. I, I know some people can play by ear. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I, I know for a fact I have a friend who can do that. But I've, um, I've learned a few songs by ear. Some people can just play by ear, yes. But, uh, but, but like for like rock bands and stuff like that, like punk bands especially, you don't need to know how to read music. It's pretty easy to play. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we transitioned from that song into another one when uh, Mari comes into the room and Ugh. we have a reunion of sorts. And uh, you can tell that Mari is in a place where it's like water under the bridge. She she She's still strained, but you can tell she, she misses her friend Becky. Um, where things get complicated is from my perspective as the viewer, I'm not... I'm not there yet. No. I haven't forgiven Becky. No. <laughs> so I guess, you know, maybe I just don't know her as well. But um, we transitioned from the Brian Adams song uh, to an original composition, which I guess was the fruits of her one year of labor uh, ha- hiding out in the woods. And Kyle, what what would your evaluation of her efforts be? Uh, the rehab song. It's uh, <laughs> she's like, I don't want to quit, but I want to get it under control. I'm like, okay do you want to not quit doing music or not quit doing drugs i'm not sure which one it is but yeah i just call it the rehab song um it's not very good most of the songs in this are not very good yeah no i i took it to mean a very similar thing um i i think it it's just a very explicit reference to the art of crafting music and living her life and getting getting out of the habit of you know being being using substances while doing all of those things mm-hmm. um but i did like uh the dialogue exchange that comes right after where basically mari is trying to uplift her a little bit like it, like make it known to her that hey you're in recovery much like i am and like every point that she makes elizabeth moss has a counter for mm-hmm. and just go it's like ping pong it's just like bink 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 and it's just like 
wow, you kind of suck, lady. Yeah. <laughs> like, can't you, can't you see I'm trying to help you out? <laughs> it's like after the third swing, it's like, I'm sorry, you get three tries. And then after that, it's like, I can't help you, lady. <laughs> like, I'll come back later. I'll come back next year. Maybe we'll try this again because three tries, I'm out. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, the... Um, yeah and this is broken up finally like the conversation has come to an end luckily her daughter comes up is like can we play outside and uh <laughs> they just go outside and then this really interesting uh it, i thought a song was about to kick in but this music that plays over her walking outside i'm like ooh, this sounds like it's going to be kind of interesting but it never yeah, develops it, it's like like a really grim ominous guitar distortion of some sort mm-hmm. and it, it's like overwhelming and then we do a hard cut from that scene um by the way the score for this film uh composed by keegan dewitt who is not at all known to me i looked at his filmography he's also he's a musician but he's also done a lot of film composition not a single fucking movie i know um i kind of hated a lot of the music in this movie i'm not gonna lie it's not very i good. like i like the the ambiance of it uh there's a like a a lot of the scenes most of the scenes in this movie take place backstage at a venue uh so there's a lot of ambient noise there's a lot of music playing but it's drowned out and it's bouncing off of uh any variety of surfaces like bricks or stone or whatever you want to call it so there's a lot of weird echoes and reverb that it's it's really grossly unnatural and disturbing i like that part of it but there's one bit of instrumentation that was driving me nuts. And it's just these like synth intrusions where it's just like a couple of like keys get diddled on a keyboard every once in a while. And it's like, no, I didn't, I didn't notice. It's, it sounds like a fucking droid droid from star Wars just like shows up. It's, it's like a droid is passing in the hallway every 10 minutes or something. Yeah. I did not pick up on any of those. I, I oh, luck, lucky you, because it was bugging me, man. I, it was really bugging me. It's just, mm. <laughs> just like every few minutes. It's, it's like so much of the drama in this movie is so well acted and intense, but then it has that playing over it. And it's mm. just like it takes just a little bit of the wind out of their sails. Uh, it's just it's just me. could just be entirely me, but I'll say this much, Kyle. I'm glad you didn't notice it, because if you had, it probably would have driving you fucking bonkers well the movie was already driving me bonkers so i didn't need to go any further it's that kind of movie (laughs) but um yeah scene ends with her leaving the house and then we do a hard cut to another of our uh handheld like behind the scenes footage i think it's just that photo shoot hanging out yeah it's just a photo shoot it's nothing too fancy it's very brief um and then we do a uh I think this is supposed to be like a celebration of their label. Mm-hmm. It's some sort. It's some sort of like party for the label. But uh, they're getting the band back together. Something she uh, to do one song just just for this party gig. And uh, shocker, Becky is in costume and is ready to go. Uh, so they got the entire band together. And as the scene plays out, uh, we see that the Acre Girls are also involved. Uh, so this is going to be like a, a joint production of sorts, and uh, this uh, this whole sequence was kind of interesting because it, it uh, unlike some of the other scenes, in particular the recording studio scene, this this one actually does have some movement to it. Uh, we do we do kind of like play around with the tonality of the situation because when we start off, 
even the lighting has changed to reflect a more positive atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lighting and the costuming, everything about it has a bright sheen to it. It, it feels more inviting, less scummy uh, she, than... So she even says that uh, this is the first time she's seen this place sober. Yes. Um, so from a visual standpoint, we're already off to a good start, and uh, Becky seems to be in good spirits. Uh, both Allie and Mari are there as well. Everybody seems to have a good vibe going. Uh, but then, like, Becky excuses herself from, like, the the green room setting, and she starts doing her thing of wandering the halls. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, then the lighting starts to change as she starts to dip into these different rooms. We get that gross, scummy, purple mood lighting that she just seems to bring with her everywhere she goes. Um, and it, it started to lend some genuine tension to things because as we, the viewer, have been trained to expect chaos, and it hasn't arrived yet, so we're... We're like we're waiting primed for the other for that. shoe to drop. Yeah. yeah, we're waiting for it to happen, and uh, I was actually kind of impressed with with how this sequence played out because we're we're kind of just following Becky, going up and down the hallways looking for everybody, like looking for all the familiar faces that we've seen throughout the film, um, and we're just not quite sure where she's at, and it's all because of all the screen time we've we've had with Elizabeth Moss up to this point, um, and at one point she runs into Zelda. Uh, and she's cordial with her, uh, which was not the case last time we saw her. Well, I think, so she says to them that she's uh, she's apologized and spoke with Zelda, but she wanted to go find her because she wanted to get her for something. So, yeah, she ends up going into this back room where people are doing coke. And she, the lady, like, recognizes, like, hey, do you want to come in and hang out? And she's like, no, 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 no. And there's literally a dude just chop, 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 like, just straight up. And it's like, oh. <laughs> so what I was thinking, like, one of the things um, I've learned was that... Um, Places where you used to like do drugs, whatever substance you abuse, people and places where you've done it can have a very, very strong triggering effect. And I kind of read this, like, I thought maybe she's nervous about going on stage, but I think this whole time she's really struggling with not doing anything. Um, and uh, where she ends up makes a lot of sense for this sequence. Um, so yeah, she goes into the room and then she's like, okay, I made it away from this room. And then she passes again and she's like, oh, where did you, did you want to come back in? She's like, no, I didn't. Realize this was the same room. Um, but yeah, she ends up finding Zelda and she's just like, hey, again, you know, sorry about stuff, but I would really like it if you would come join me and the girls for a seance. I'm like, okay, we're going to do a seance. <laughs> um, which they do, but it's just they say their names, so that's pretty much it. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. That's why I was getting at when we first started recording was um, that idea of like a stage persona or an assumed persona persona rather than a i guess one that you're born into it's it's simultaneously empowering but at the same time it's like that's a concept that seems really foreign and strange to me Mm -hmm. the idea of casting your quote true self aside in favor of like a preferred one um i I don't have an opinion on it either way it's just it's a foreign way of thinking is Mm -hmm. all um and this whole scene is kind of symbolic of that where it's like literally everyone in this room has an alternative name that they probably spend more hours of their life inhabiting rather than their birth name. Um, it, with the exception of Zelda, who one, one of the other gals does remark like your name's actually Zelda. <laughs> Fuck. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. My dad has a huge neck beard. Um, so the, uh, <laughs> um, uh, we forgot to mention the shaman. I do like the exchange that uh, Mari and uh, Becky have at the house before they get to the to the venue. She's just like, 
yeah, you were listening to that shaman who's in prison but for now, like now, because he was scamming people and she's just like, he understood me. Like, like she just like <laughs> like throws it right back at her like no 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 he was like, he was special like no he was a criminal <laughs> yeah no i i did catch that and i did that i did think that was kind of interesting and also like he it points to him as being a a culprit in uh in their financial woes because mm-hmm. they they ask her multiple times how much money she's dumped into oh. into yaima and it's no number figure is ever given but we can we can assume it was too much yeah um i did like that he has an album at the end of the movie though he does <laughs> so yeah um spoiler alert when we get to the end credits um everybody everybody gets their own dedicated slide uh for all the cast members and each of their names are associated with uh it's either a magazine cover or an album cover and when we get to yaima uh who is again portrayed by eka darville uh, from that Jessica Jones show on Netflix, uh, he does have like an album. <laughs> it says like Yaima. <laughs> it's like, so apparently, even if he went to jail, he did put out an album that, in the universe of her smell, you could get at a Tower Records. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we finish the seance, and then Becky just kind of leaves again. Like I, I, yeah. I, I didn't even catch it. Like she just kind of leaves, um, and the guy comes in. And is like, all right, fifteen minutes till you're on again. Until you guys are on, and like, okay, well, like, well, where the hell is she? And then, like, eight minutes until you're on, like, okay, now we really have to find her. Now they're concerned because now Howard's in the mix. He's like, oh, well, we can't find her? And they're like, no. And he's like, well, fuck. Like, <laughs> I thought this was going to go smoothly. Um, <laughs> just, but, just one time. Just I did, one fucking time. <laughs> I did like uh, Howard here when he sees them. Uh, he's kind of being like a playful dick. He's just like, you know, I don't really like you guys. Let's just go get a picture real quick. Um, and I, th- I think he's like, I like two-thirds of you uh, but he was just i'm like is he being a dick or is he just being kind of like playful um it could have gone I think either he way just i think he just gets them like mm. honestly he strikes me as a pretty decent manager like in in a in a subgenre of film pop like overpopulated with scummy manager types like he seems like one of the good ones honestly mm. yeah i can see that <laughs> um but yeah now we're like five minutes till showtime and they're like almost positive that she's like in the bathroom doing coke or something like that we have to go find her um yeah i think ali thinks that she might be suicidal even oh really yeah yeah i, I can see like, that that was that was the vibe i got because like she, becky does like have some comments of like kind of edging on the theme of finality or mm-hmm. and also there's that running theme of like talking about her child as being the the death of her or like bringing about her downfall in some way and it's like yeah, I can see why Allie would think like we have to find this lady now. Um, but yeah, the uh, I think uh, I think the daughter is the death of the something persona that she has uh, created. Yeah, it's either the death of the persona or just the career, like yeah, closing closing the book on on one chapter and opening the book for another. But they do find her finally standing like a crazy person at the stage door. <laughs> I did like that. I forget who says it, but one of them does say, "Why is she standing there like that?" <laughs> <laughs> like, like it, like the way the camera is fixated on her. It's like we, the audience, are asking the exact same question. It's like the shot looks straight out of a fucking J horror movie. <laughs> well, it's interesting because we've seen her sit uh, sober and just stare into nothing and just stand perfectly still, but we've also seen her messed up, just sitting 
perfectly still. So we see her standing perfectly still, like, uh-oh, well, which one is it? Um, and they, they turn her around, and I think she's just, like, super nervous about going up on stage. Um, yeah. And we kind of, I was looking at her nose to kind of see if there was anything there. Uh, she didn't do any coke, but I kept, like, trying to pick up on it and see if it was there. Um, but I think she gives a big old hug to her daughter, and uh, Howard introduces them, like, six times before they actually come out. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned the coke thing because like, if I was to if I was to ask two major questions about like the presentation choices in this film, one would be like, why didn't we like more explicitly detail like the level of success and fame that that Becky has? Because like I said, there's a lot of instances of through dialogue alone, it it seems to be hinting that she's probably more famous than we the viewer believe her to be at least i didn't uh, maybe it's just taste in music or something but to me like when the acre girls were going on and on about her genius and being so in awe of her i just didn't see it and i again we we get to see that they had a platinum record and stuff so i i guess in the fiction of the film we're supposed to believe that she's a musical genius of some sort well even though when we see her like one year of effort spent in the woods crafting music i I was not especially impressed by it yeah well kanye west and his fans have been saying that he's a genius for years and i've listened to him (laughs) i'm like i'm not getting it guys i mean he's got a couple of good songs but i'm not i'm not i don't get it sorry (laughs) (laughs) no i i get that but other question would would be in regards to her drug habit Uh, because a lot of lip service is paid to her drug her drug problems being a problem Mm. only problem i have with that is that we don't explicitly see it very much at all you just don't like we see it like once that's all you need Um, because because you see it once and you see the behavior that it causes and then moving forward uh at least when she's like off the rails you know that that's what she was doing it's pretty clear the what go ahead i guess but but my feeling is that you know that's one part of the problem like the real problem is her as a person with I, with really bad psychology. <laughs> like like a really she's a really busted ass person. Substances make it worse, but that's just one component. I think the the recording studio portion I think might be uh, on the down. Like she's just down. Um, mm. There could have been other substances. She could be. Do, she could also be doing heroin. Uh, but I didn't really get that vibe from there. I just thought she was just being kind of a dick there um she might have not even had anything that day it's hard to say because the way mari talks about her when she meets her in the in the house in the woods she does say like i I really fucking miss you which suggests that she was a different person before the movie started Mm -hmm. only problem is we never ever got to witness that so again we just have a couple of snippets of dialogue here that infer a a few points here and there but i don't know to me I, i didn't really think of drugs as I guess being as big of a problem as a lot of the characters in the movie were suggesting it was. Really? I like I said I think she's a broken person. Uh if you take the drugs out of the, out of the equation, she's still, she's still broken. Oh yeah, yeah the, she's the, still she's still fucking busted. Yeah, that, that's why I wanted to mention Howard because he put up with a lot. And yes. this next scene I think would uh, lend to your theory that she's just a broken person because she is an absolute asshole to him up on stage when she gets up there <laughs> well she's also performing in front of a crowd and you know any anytime there's a 
anytime there's a camera or or an audience involved people people flick a switch like behavior changes pretty radically she's not reading the room she's just like yeah howard i'm not gonna say any more nice things about you howard you asshole i'm just like they're not they're not getting the joke they got one of them but you're just like okay get i don't know maybe it's a punk thing where it's like yeah it's just it's expected that you'll be kind of a jackass (laughs) um but yeah long story short there uh, there was sorry there there was there must have been like a really big problem uh with uh they ordered sandwiches like they they had sandwiches on the uh the tour rider and it was just like like really small slices of bread and every time she tried to fold it's like i can't can't make sandwiches out of this so maybe that just that was some bad blood there yeah she just held on to that for for all those years <laughs> it's all got to come out now when i'm on this stage yeah on a fucking microphone that was a spinal tap <laughs> reference sorry <laughs> you know i i actually did see that movie a few years ago uh, my dad was always a big fan of that one and oh, it great. took me took me forever to get to it but i thoroughly enjoyed oh that i one. love that one that's that's great stuff oh yeah no i, I miss that style of comedy quite a bit yeah. um I watched a uh, Best in Show uh, not oh. too long ago as well. That one's that's a good one too. <laughs> Catherine O'Hara is a treasure. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's wonderful. Yes. She's great. But um, but yeah. Long story short, uh, Becky's daughter is at the venue, and she kind of comes back to herself when she when she gets to hug her daughter, and then she heads out to the stage uh, with her bandmates. And as Kyle said, she has a little speech. Uh, it's a an uplifting speech. Uh, she is blindingly overlit on the stage. Uh, again, I, I think the visual language of the movie is pointing towards like we're on the upswing here uh, in terms of the arc of, of Becky's life here. Uh, and uh, she invites the Acre Girls up onto the stage along with Zelda. Uh, so we have a super duper group up on the stage. Well, uh, and they all Zelda play a has song a, together. Yeah, Zelda has a tambourine. Um, <laughs> yeah, one of those are super girl. Um, but is Allie playing the drums? And uh, yeah, she yeah, is. Yeah. So yeah, we get a whole song again uh, at the end of this movie. Um, and yeah, <laughs> whole song. Everybody's super happy. Everybody's doing their, you know musician acting which it's I, the mega happy ending kyle <laughs> I, I always find musician acting odd um but there in rockstar uh zach wilde who is the guitarist for ozzy osbourne when randy rhodes died um and he has his own band black label society but uh he's very very talented uh guitarist and uh he is one of the guitar players in rockstar and i remember watching him like oh that's Zach Wilde because I know how he plays on stage. I've seen him play oh. before. So they yeah. show him. I'm like, oh. I, and then I looked at him. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally Zach Wilde. These, all these girls are not great at their uh, <laughs> at their uh, musician acting, which I found kind of cringy. Uh, Green Room, they're all really good. Yeah, no, th- there's a there's a certain kineticism that comes with like a, a punk performance that you you really got to put your whole body into it and mm. yeah it, this is like oddly like josie and the pussycats like mm-hmm. where it's Very like com- combination of the lighting and the costuming and just the the upbeat vibe to this punk show mm-hmm. just feels really off and in fact i'm watching it uh muted right now Ooh. which which really doesn't help with with, with the, the fingering and stuff oh. <laughs> I mean, oh. it makes it look oh. that much worse 
that's something else I notice as a guitar player is I notice when somebody does not know how to play the instrument. And I guess Elizabeth Moth just did learn how to play guitar for this for a few months. But this end scene, I'm like, oh, she's got four fingers on one string. I'm like, she's not at all playing that guitar. Well, all credit to her. She, uh, as far as I know, everybody did their own singing in this movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a genre that you don't need to be of you know of a vocal genius to to get it right so it it's actually welcoming for that but just just to do it is something that not everybody you know has the privilege or is encouraged to do in film and you know it doesn't sound awful and it's it's a very complete performance because of that but um yeah i'm not sure how i feel about the idea of every song in the movie being played in its entirety i don't like Uh, it i don't like it it. (laughs) no sir no sir nope. i don't like it nope, nope, nope. <laughs> um but yeah they complete the song everybody gives a bow and our fine our final sequence is them heading backstage um we be we end as we began mm-hmm. uh backstage in the hallway um and apparently they're calling for an encore eric stoltz is encouraging uh the something she gals to head back out but elizabeth moss while cradling her baby tama or not baby child uh says nope that's it that's all i've got that's all there is and then we tilt the camera up to the same neon sign from the opening of the film her smell and then credits and like i said the credits were kind of fun to watch because every actor's name uh, has a visual element associated with it in the form of a uh, fabricated album cover which which was a lot of fun to look at especially because they they went to great lengths to get like the period details correct like like a tower records like sticker and Mm -hmm just like the weathering and the style of graphic design feels very much of of the era it's intending to represent but yeah that was uh that was her smell um certainly not uh my favorite film that we've covered this this month um i really do hope you check out uh, the square on your own time because i did i did find it to be a very interesting film with a lot of really really interesting ideas also it served as an introduction for a danish actor that uh my brother Matt uh, from uh, the Couch Co-op podcast uh, is super up on. Mm. Uh, he he keeps he keeps talking about this guy like he's going to be the next big deal. Uh, his name is Clay Spang, and uh, Kyle his his next project in due out in 2022, directed by Robert Eggers. So, I uh, the Lighthouse and the Witch. Oh oh. So I would imagine he's got a future. Okay. Um, because that, that guy for now, can't he can't miss. He's got two hits in a row. I would imagine he's got at least one more left in him. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, that was uh, Her Smell from Alex Ross Perry. Any uh, closing thoughts, Kyle? No, I think we got it all out there. Yeah, and, f- and then some. Uh, I did not expect to go on as long as we did on this one. In fact, I'm... I'm I'm genuinely kind of upset about that. <laughs> like, I really, I really actually didn't want to talk about this movie that much. No. <laughs> is what it is, though. Um, anyway, uh, next week, it sounds like we're going to be tackling Shirley yeah. uh, from 2020. Uh, so hopefully uh, that one ends up being an all-around more enjoyable uh, experience. Uh, I, I will say this much. I did not hate this film. Uh, in fact, on a technical level, I really enjoyed quite a bit of it. It just wasn't for me. Uh, so I appreciate I, I appreciate what it was trying to do and what it is. It's just not for me. Just not for so, me. Yeah, yeah. So it's a movie that, like, despite all the negative comments and snark that I may have brought to the conversation, it's probably not going to get an awful star rating in my book. I'll probably still give it like a three, <laughs> three out of five or something. Yeah, I'm comfortable uh, with that. 
Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, in the meantime, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. And the podcast is available on pretty much any platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. Google uh, it. But that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Yeah. You're a punk rock kind of guy. I am. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> That's accurate.